0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Susan Thompson, a professor at Colgate University. Today, my guest is journalist Susan Hartman. She has written an intimate book about refugee experience in the United States. The book is titled City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathe life into an American town. Hartman introduces us to Utica, a small Rust Belt city located in upstate New York. Just 250 miles north of Manhattan, the city provides the backdrop as Hartman examines the lives of three refugees, a Somali Bantu teenager who straddles the expectations of her Somali mother and those of her American peers, an Iraqi interpreter who worked with the American military in Baghdad, and a Bosnian entrepreneur who finally achieves her American dream of opening a cafe and bakery in March 2020. Across 48 short chapters, Hartman traces how Utica's economic and cultural renewal is tied to the city's policy of welcoming refugees from across the globe. But not everyone is happy, as locals often see refugees as foreigners who steal jobs, drain public coffers, and overwhelm social services. But as Hartman ably demonstrates, refugees bring their energy and wit in rebuilding their lives and growing new communities in cities such as Utica. In the process, readers learn of the ways in which refugees have invigorated Rust Belt cities, long characterized by declining industry, decrepit factories, and aging population. The book ends with a caution America's closed door refugee policy threatens the well being of Americans and refugees alike. Um, Susan Hartman, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. I want to start from the very beginning. Why write a book about the lives of refugees to tell a story about the American Rust Belt?
1: Well, I sort of fell into this story sideways. Um, I I often write about immigrant communities in New York City and a professor I knew upstate, but only, only just a little bit, he called me out of the blue and he said, Did I know that Utica had become a city of refugees? He knew I was the kind of work that intrigued me. And I hadn't known that, but I did have a strong feeling about Utica because I had gone to Hamilton College when it was actually was the women's part, Kirkland College in the seventies. And so I had a long relationship with Utica and I'd always been very interested in it. it. It was a down and out city. Um, It seemed to have a lot of potential, a lot of old, beautiful buildings, and I had watched it over the years, and I would make trips up, but I hadn't been in a long time. So he invited me up. Uh, A couple of days later, I was in the car, and I was just very struck by what I saw, that the city had become somewhat transformed by refugees who'd come from all over the world,
0: In which ways does Utica tell um, an American story? Is there something bigger? Utica is, of course, not far from where I am right now. And it is, as you know, revitalized. But it had been um, a booming city long before um, refugees were courted to the city. There was a policy that brought them to the city. As you know, what makes Utica compelling in this case? Well,
1: Utica is like... A lot of other Rust Belt cities, um, cities like Detroit, Chicago, cities that had lost population and had once been thriving industrial hubs. So it's similar to the, was similar to those cities, but it was different in that accidentally it became a magnet for refugees. Um, a woman named Roberta Douglas became very interested in the treatment of Amerasian's in Vietnam and she brought one man to Utica and then she started bringing other Amerasians and then other some institutions in in the area became interested including the Lutheran Church and they started a refugee center there and so for the last 40 years it's extraordinary um People have come from all over the world. So they have a policy in Utica. They have a system set up and the townspeople in large part have welcomed them because they they know they helped transform the city. They would come, work in factory jobs, eventually start small businesses, just as the grandparents of Utica Natives did. Years ago, at the turn of the century, people came from Italy, Poland, um, Germany. and so so they remember, they remember how hard it was and they remember what their grandparents did. So, so there is this empathy, you know, as well as some
0: resentment on the part of some people. I mean that makes um, sense when you think about it. There's always a push and pull. Um, it's one thing I really yeah. appreciated about your book was the detail that you were able to gather about um, Sadia's life, Ali's life, uh, Marcia's life. Can you introduce us to them before we get into the rest of the interview? Yeah, of course. Well,
1: my first week up there, kind of scouting around and being very interested in in everything, I did meet these three people who seemed to me um, extraordinary. Sadia was a a 15-year-old Somali Bantu girl. She just had a ton of spunk, and she was always in a conflict with her mom. The mother herself was a bit of a maverick and independent-minded, but she wanted her daughters, and she had many daughters. She had 11 children when I first met her. She wanted them to be good Somali Bantu girls, and that meant going to school, doing homework, helping at home, helping raise the younger children, cooking and cleaning. There's a lot of work because there's a lot of children. Um, and Sadia wanted to have the life of a teenage American girl. And she was really the only sister who put up this kind of battle. So they were always fighting. And I was just very curious what would happen. And so I began following her. And Ali is a interpreter in Iraqi who'd worked for Peter Jennings and other journalists in Baghdad, a very intelligent guy. He was, he struck me as pretty much haunted by the war. His brother, a beloved brother had been pulled off a bus by insurgents and had disappeared. So had two of his nephews. So he was damaged and also, uh, but building a new life in Utica, he had a, a wonderful, high-spirited girlfriend who was a Utica native. Building a life, and yet also was pulled back to Iraq. And in his case, I was very curious: would he, like many refugees, feel pulled back and forth, you know, for for years, or would he would he settle down and? absolutely start an American life and turn his back on Iraq. So again, I was, I had these questions. I was very curious. And Marcia is also struck me as extraordinary. She's an entrepreneur. She had a house, a husband, four children, and in the basement, she ran a bakery. She's a very gifted pastry chef. She was also working full time teaching ESL at the Refugee Center. So she was madly busy, uh, energetic, driven, ambitious, in a way, um, the same kind of qualities that we admire in people who run American companies. She's very high powered. But as we know, her to have a dream of starting a bakery or restaurant is a dream of a lot of people. And I think something like um, 75% of restaurants failed in the first year. So I was just very curious, could she make this happen? It's, she was dead set on it. She was willing to gamble everything Or you know, or would she fail? So these were questions I had. And I was also very curious about the city. The city was beginning to spark to life um it had a, a building that had just become luxury loft, a luxury loft building, which no one I think who has known Utica uh, in the 70s, when I knew it best, would ever have dreamed that this could happen, to see Utica become a bit gentrified. But I was seeing these flickers of new life, new bars, restaurants, um, and yet it's still a, a gray city, struggling um has a bit of a, a chip on its shoulder, used to being defensive because people have always made jokes about Utica. And you know, so I was just very curious, and that's what hooked me. And so I did a cover story for the Times um in 2014. And then when I was done with the story, instead of doing the normal thing, um leaving that story and taking on a different story. I just kept going back and back and back. And I had no idea that it would take eight and a half years before my questions were answered. And yeah. And that it developed into a book um, and never stopped
0: the material, never stopped. Interesting. Me, interesting. Me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I um, just two things that you said, really jump out to me. Number one is just curiosity. Curiosity is so important as just an approach and a method and, probably just a way of being in the world. So I want to like (laughs) dig a little bit on your curiosity, but you also speak of them as people, you know, well, and for whom you have affection does. Um, so taking, leaving those two ideas together, how do you as a journalist pursue your curiosity while respecting the boundaries of normal human relationships?
1: Yeah, it's very tricky, you know, easier in a shorter story. Um, less that's, there's less intimacy, but when, you know, period over years, you know so much about them. It is trickier. Well, there were certain things I did that I think helped this work. I, I was, was not embedded with them. You know, there's some journalists that are like, they're living with a gang. Um, They're living in the trailer park or whatever. No, I, I, I visited them and I was very careful not to overstay. I found what worked best was to go up and visit if if that was okay with them um you know for an afternoon and maybe come back the next afternoon or evening if that was okay. And then and then leave and maybe keep in touch through um phone but not to overstay. If I felt people were going through something that was really so intensely private, I think there's a possibility another journalists would just have pressed. You know, they have to be part of everything. I respected the the privacy, but of course, as a journalist, you you do press, but not not so much that it was ever, I think, hurtful or invasive. Um, so I had those limits, and. I work longhand, which is maybe unusual, and it was very hard on my hands um, because I feel that's more intimate, less intrusive than taping. So I would often just be curled into a, a sofa corner, and I think after a while became invisible. People, I think, felt free to just be who they were around me, and I... I think they picked up that I was not judging. Uh, I was interested, respectful. I never mentioned this, and it was only when I was done that it hit me. Maybe one of the reasons this was so familiar to me and I was so comfortable with it is that this is my background, that my grandparents were refugees, Jewish refugees from Poland. They were fleeing for their lives. I watched my, my parents. They are... Um, first-generation Americans, so they have all the um, drive for their kids that, you know, I was seeing in the parents that I was observing, you know, so it was actually a very familiar scene, you know, some people have said, how did you, um, you know, it's so different from your life, Um, you know, you don't know those languages and blah, 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 but, you know, I think it. I was really very comfortable for a lot of reasons. And also because for 35 years, I had been following
0: immigrant groups in New York City. Thank you for sharing so much of that. I do have like like maybe too much of a social scientific question, but you can tell me if it doesn't work. How did you gain consent? Like I'm going to, you know, I'm Susan Hartman, I'm going to write a book going to be published do you consent to participate like that's a very awkward thing that social scientists have to do so how did you build the trust-based relationships that yeah. work required because the book really shines when you're writing you know Sadia um Sadia has such issues with her mom and her mom is so stubborn and you can see that it hurts um Sadia but cultural politics get in the way and family dynamics get in the way so that's just one episode in this that sort of follows through the whole book. So, How do you, how do you center a life, but also respect a broader context?
1: Yeah. Okay. So one thing that crops to mind quickly from what you just said is, you know, I was able to see it from both sides. And I think that's why they didn't in any way ban me from these arguments they were having or from describing what they were going through with each other. Um, I'm a mom and I understood Zahara's point of view, having a really wild teenager because I had a, a difficult artist son, but I have been the difficult artist's daughter. You know, so I, having been in both situations, I think was a help. I think they felt that I got them. And um, when there's a scene where Sadia feels that the mother has kicked her out of the house for something really stupid and she's devastated and she she leaves for quite a while wandering and she's homeless for a bit. And some people have said to me that that was cruel of Zahara. How can you how could you possibly, you know, write about that in, in a impartial way. But I saw from Zahara's point of view that um, she was so hurt. She felt Zadia was being so disrespectful. Not that that was in any way, you know, a a good thing to do to ever make your child feel because Zadia did feel abandoned, but I, I, I kind of understood what, where it was coming from. And I, of, of course, understood how Sadia felt to have a door locked. Um, now, the issue of consent is very tricky because, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of people in the United States and you say, I work for the New York Times or I'm writing a book, some people are gonna be very happy to be part of it. They like the idea of being in a book or in a newspaper article, especially if they're doing something cool that needs to be advertised and they may see the monetary value of that, but refugees are not going to understand. They don't know the New York times, this particular group. Um, That's another world. So how do I really make them understand what, what they'd be getting into? So, What I could do was just to try my best. And again, it wasn't new to me because I had been doing this before. So these are the kind of things I did. I would describe, let's say, first it was going to be in the Times, what that story would be like, what would be in it. And I would show them examples of similar stories, physical copies of similar stories with photographs and I would explain a photographer, you know, would be coming. How do they feel about that? And, um, but, you know, it, it, it's always a worry. Do people really understand what, what they're getting into? Um, now here, they. it was such a long process, almost a decade of knowing me and knowing a book was coming. But it was something I, you know, had to do my best to try to establish um, also Sadia was young when she said yes. So then toward the end, at the beginning, she's a rebellious kid. At the end, she's a young mother in love with her baby. So she's a bit of a different person. So I said to her, would you like your name to be changed? And I said that to her family as well. And my take was, that might be a very good idea because, um, you know, she spoke so openly and was in such conflict. And at the very end, in the epilogue, you see she's not in such conflict with the mom any longer, they have a, a reunion, um, they are at peace. Yes, so she said, and this really surprised me, she said, No, she said very firmly, I want my name used and i and but i didn't just give up i was like are, are you sure and she's like yes i'm proud of what i um what i said and who i was and the same thing with the the family again i was surprised because it is really intimate Th- that story in particular is the most intimate um and the most shaded um and i I think, in some ways complex and and again, they said, no, you we like we like this, this is us, you know, they were fine with it, but on the other hand, it is a different thing once it's a book, so it's a book. How do people really feel about it, and how will they feel about it in ten years? This is complicated. I have never been in a book. I would not like to be in a book, so <laughs> I don't know how it will, um, how this will make them feel years from now. But anyway, it, it's it's amazing that this worked out that the relationship, reporter subjects worked out because these you know people may think refugees are smashed down people people with no options, not complicated people. Might see them in a simplistic way. Well, no, refugees are complicated human beings, and these three that I wrote about are big personalities, charismatic, opinionated, interesting, difficult people. And it, it's amazing that we 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 always got along. There was, you know, not very much friction whatsoever.
0: I think that's where the book really shines. It's very clear that content, consent was continuous. You checked in with them. There were yeah. weekly as you as you've now described to us. It's in the book in the in your process section. Um, yeah. Yeah so it's there and um Sadie is so interesting because she does as you know come full circle she t- does fulfill in some way um the expectations of her family but on her own terms very much on her own terms yeah. Her, yeah her sense of agency and i think also that of Ellie and um uh, Mercia is so compelling in the book cuz you provide these rich Full-bodied characters, you know, these are people who live just down the road from where I'm sitting now. I've actually been to Lucia's um, cafe since I read your book. Oh, that's um, the are spectacular, uh, but you see the ways in which a family life is actually very hard because refugees come, immigrants come with a whole other life that is often inaccessible. Um, or, you know, unwanted actually by some American communities. I think the book is a a triumph in that way. And when you're speaking about Sadia, I'm thinking also about Ali, because of course, you know, it's in the book, he talks about it. He lives with trauma or potentially post-traumatic stress disorder. How do you build a relationship with someone who's so fearful and closed off, so reactive in their body? That I think is also something the book does. Um, quite well, and readers can learn a lot about American um, society, but also like refugee vibrancy, I think, um in the book. and I, I did I did really appreciate that. But was there ever, you know, you're speaking with Ali, He's lost his brother. he's been embedded with different American communities in Baghdad. Were there things that perhaps he said to you or any of your informants said to you that you just could not write about ethically? you were like, this is too much. It will be a betrayal 10 years from now, as you noted in, the, in your response to my last question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely making decisions. There are times people will, will tell you too much and freely tell you too much. They just may not realize how that may come across. And and I've had this happen before in my other stories I've worked in, where I just won't There's something I won't touch because they're telling me something they they've never told anyone and first they need to tell people in their in their lives about this before you know letting this into the world or sometimes it's not it's just not relevant actually to the story uh yes yeah, so there is this protective element with ali i think mostly the things he told me um were n- not actually things that were I mean, they were intimate, but not things that he I felt that were inappropriate for me to, you know, put in the story. Um, And the the thing one reason he told me is he felt it's important, just as he does this anti-terrorism work in Iraq, he's always going back and forth. um, He feels an obligation, I think, to. Not to get back at terrorists for what they did to his brother, but to to try to um do something positive so that you know they can't do damage to others and uh so he he wanted this story of his brother to be told and That's one reason I first got interested in him. He was driving me. He was acting as an interpreter um, with an Iraqi family that I was interviewing. And I was struck by how sensitive he was as they were speaking, how quiet, how much they liked him. And he had, he would sometimes bring them fish. He liked to fish and he'd bring them fresh fillets. Um, And he just understood what they were going through and how lonely they were. When we got back in the car, you know, I asked him this question. Um, Again, I'm curious, I'm nosy. His beard was white, but his hair was very dark. And I said, why is that? And he said that the beard had turned white when he got the call that his brother had been taken by insurgents, that he fell into a deep sleep, and that when he woke up, his aunt was leaning over him, screaming, what happened? Your beard is white and it never came back to, you know, the black color of the rest of his hair. So I was so struck by that. And he described it. It was so, he had such a lyrical way of speaking. Um, So yes. So I got interested in him and uh, I might want, want to add if it's okay, that a big problem in this story is that I lost him at a certain point. He decided to go back to Iraq for, he didn't know it would be for three years, but I'm working on a story and I lost one of my three main characters. So as a journalist, you then have the option, okay, cut him out, start all over with another another person. You can't lose your your character. And he'd let me know he couldn't speak to me from Iraq because he's doing top secret work. He'd be connecting with his girlfriend, but that would be it. So I did some thinking about it and I just decided I had, I felt so much for him. I saw so much invested. I still wanted to work with him in some way, but I felt I could tell the story through Heidi, his girlfriend. She was, she was a wonderful storyteller. And through the information she was getting from him, that I could keep going with the story and also that I would perhaps be there when he, and interview him when he came home because initially he thought it would be only for a year.
0: So that was a very unusual way for the story to develop. But it does speak, I think, to the relationships you were able to develop because Heidi does become a full character in the latter part of the book. Yeah, yeah. Her daughter who's gone away to college and um, brings home her first girlfriend, which is a little bit of a cultural challenge for Ellie, but he accepts it because he loves them. And that that part I thought was actually um, a great segue into Marcia's life because you see with her drive And her insistence that the restaurant be this way with this decor and we have this menu and we not overcharge people, almost a metaphor for Utica itself, because she was bound and determined that it would work in her way. And towards the end of her story, you introduce us to the mayor of Utica, Robert (laughs) Collins, and he is also stubborn and wants things to be this way. And you can see it on the streets. Utica, um, the drive of these two very differently situated um, individuals. And I guess one question I had just think, ha- having met the three of them, did they ever speak of anti-immigrant um, sentiment that they'd experienced? You know, upstate can be, can run a little red. Um, we have high Fox viewership just looking at the statistics. Um, did that ever enter their lives or did they find themselves in protective bubbles? Because Utica itself, the Mohawk Valley Refugee Center is such a special organization.
1: Yes, yes. Well, it's true what you're saying, bubbles, that, you know, refugee families create a very comfortable home bubble in Utica. So that there's that. Then, you know, their children tend to get more out of the bubble and sometimes drag them out as well. But, okay, there are these bubbles. But um, Marcia was particularly aware of um ha- that she was would always be seen as a refugee. And that frustrated her. And I, I thought she had this beautiful way of putting it. She once got very exasperated because um someone she worked with at the refugee center asked her about an incident where a Bosnian young man had called in a couple bomb threats. And this woman asked her in a kind of a nasty way, had she heard about that? And Mercia was so hurt and outraged. She felt, why are you asking me about that? Because inside she felt, I feel the way any American feels. The guy should be punished. If it was my son, he should be punished. If you do something like that, she felt that someone educated should have known better than to stereotype her and she said to me what should i get a t-shirt and put on it i'm i'm bosnian muslim um in other words is that all she is to people she want she wishes that she could go to a party and someone comes up to her they might say you know ha how are you? Do you, you know, what kind of work do you do? She said, when she goes to a party, people, the first question is always, where are you from? And she says, I can't do anything about my accent. I have an accent, but she just wants to be seen as an American, someone who loves Utica. Um, And she, it's frustrating. She says, I will always be a refugee. Where is my place? Nowhere. Because if you're not totally accepted here. You're not totally accepted in Bosnia when she goes back in the summer, because the Bosnians see her as a wealthy American, even though that is not exactly who she is. Um, so it, it's difficult. And I, I felt that was very eloquent when she expressed that.
0: I mean, that sense of liminality um, definitely pervades the book. Thank you for sharing that with me. I wonder if you could update us. Have you been in touch with them? The book ends... Um, with some update of how each of them are doing. Have you been in touch with them since? Where are they now?
1: Yeah, I have been. um, Well, Mercia's restaurant is flourishing. So that's just wonderful. They were able last summer to take a very long vacation. I don't know that that's something they ever have done to Turkey. And just, it was a joy she works tremendously hard to the point of risking her health. And so this was imperative and she could afford to do that. So that's great. But, you know, the restaurant business is never easy. It's always a struggle. Even if, if, if your restaurant is packed, it's, there's always struggle. Um, So Ali, I was surprised because at the end of the book, he comes home and he's on his way back from one of the contracts and it just seems like he's had it finally that he, um, he accepts, he wants a stable life in Utica, a calm life, a peaceful life. He's going to get a little house with a garage and fix things and not go back to Iraq. And that he opened up for the first time and said, he feels he has PTSD, that a friend of his had been killed um, who was also a contractor there doing similar work. He was an an interpreter and he said he'd had it. So I was very surprised, but it makes sense that he talks about going back, that again, that pull to do anti-terrorism work there, to get another contract, the bad parts, the difficult parts, and the trauma uh, are kind of taking a back seat. He's up for it again. So we'll see what happens. And his girlfriend just accepts that. That's part of who he is. He may be coming and going for the next years. Anyway, that surprised me. But they did get a lovely little house and are very happy with that house. Um And then Sadia is um, a mother and a runner, and I think is heading toward uh, being an entrepreneur. She's very interested in real estate, in um, the idea of buying um, properties that are uh, very, need a lot of work and then flipping them. It's something she saw her mother do. The mother herself was entrepreneurial and had a couple of houses, tenants, and um she was very good at amassing bits of money, down payments to to do that. And yeah, so I think that you know, immigrants have always done that. Um yeah, so anyway, she's she seems like she's in a good place.
0: That's um, lovely to hear on all fronts too. I should say too, in trauma theory, um, scholars who write about post-traumatic stress, there is a body of the literature, a subsection of the literature that says individuals with PTSD often return to the scene where the damage happened in an effort to, to rewrite the script. Mm. And that may be there's no way to know, obviously, but it may be something that Ali has in the back of his mind without realizing it.
1: yeah, yeah,
0: that's that's
1: fascinating. Yeah. And you know, I did spend a bit of time. So there is this chapter on trauma. And I chose to do it from the perspective of, um, so I enter this the story of trauma in the book through a, a community leader who's very upfront about his own trauma from Burma. And he he helps others uh, in his community. So I'm in this chapter, I'm in a truck with him and we're heading toward a young woman who has been uh, in conflict with her husband who was abusive and left him. And then I'm interviewing within that chapter, some local doctors talking about how they handle it and different people, how, how they manage their trauma. And it's mostly from what I could see within the people I spoke with, it's handled, people are handling it on their own. They're not likely to go into um, therapy. They're sometimes medicating themselves through um, drugs or alcohol. They're, trying to lift spirits through wonderful things like hiking and gardening, uh, growing vegetables from their home countries, having animals in their apartments and fish tanks and things like that. So all kinds of ways of dealing with trauma, but it's, yeah, a a struggle.
0: I mean, that's so interesting what you say in the context of these um, life histories of these people's lives, because there's another threat in trauma theory that um, disabuses, dislikes the American emphasis on talking. Talking will make you feel better. Mm, and yeah. there can often be a cultural disconnect. And I know that Mohawk Valley Refugee Center is completely mindful of this cultural clash. Yeah. Um, sharing that with us. Um, yeah. I've taken up quite a bit of your time. I wonder If we can end on a recommendation, do you have a book, a podcast, a blog, something that readers, I'm sorry, our listeners can read to learn more about your topic, about immigrant experience in the United States?
1: You know, I think the thing, you know, as a, because I'm a journalist, I'm really very hooked on um, keeping in touch with the continuing story of what refugees are going through by always scouring um, newspapers and, you know, especially time, the Times, I think they, the New York Times does a very good job of of following these migrations. So looking at different parts of the world and uh, seeing the threads among what different refugee groups are going through. And so now we're reading about Sudan, people are, are fleeing to Egypt and other countries. So anyway, that's been my focus, and you know, I teach a course at Columbia in the MFA program, writing about communities, and uh, I encourage my students to follow features, which are the kind of thing I write, which are story human stories that also reflect on larger issues. So, for me, that's just the greatest thing to follow a you know a family, a, a person the issue of recently in the times of very young children who are, they're migrants and they're working, they're exploited here as workers. They're 11 years old and they're working in factories. So I think that kind of thing is just really wonderful to connect to.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Thank you for being with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was delightful look forward to your next book. We've been learning from um, Susie Hartman on her book, City of Refugees. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.